I am very grateful to be here with you, and I'm also very grateful for you. Typically, as Dave mentioned, our family lives and serves as international workers, and we were slated to depart on August 13th to fly back overseas. At the end of July, we got the final word that for sure, for sure, for sure, the border is not opening. And so we entered this amazingly crazy season of trying to figure out, well, what do we do next? And on August 13th, instead of gathering up our bags and flying, we gathered up our bags, loaded the minivan, and drove to Butler. And we walked into an apartment that was fully furnished by you. Thank you for taking care of my family. As, as a husband and as a dad, I want you to know what that meant to me. Our stuff is scattered all over the place. And we showed up with our suitcases, and you had outfitted this apartment. Thank you. But beyond the material, I want you to know what it's meant to us these past months to be invited into your community. Deb has been part of a Tuesday evening group. I go on a Thursday night. My son goes to the middle school group. We're part of a small group. We've decided we don't know how long we're here, so we're jumping in with two feet. And you have embraced us, invited us to your homes, and welcomed us. It means a lot to us. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for the way that you have provided for us and the way that you've welcomed us. My guess is that our family is not unique in the entering a crazy season for the past couple months. If you were honest this morning, even if your day has started off well, you would probably be able to identify some ways that the ground has felt a little shaky these past months. As you look into the future, you also may say, boy, that ground looks a little shaky too. And so what I would like to do this morning is to have a moment together where we can remind ourselves of what is bedrock, what we can stand on. And I remember the story of, of Peter jumping out of the boat to walk to Jesus. Do you remember what happened in that moment? Scripture says, when he saw the waves around him, in other words, when he took his eyes off what he should have been focusing on and looked at the chaos around him, when that happened, he started to sink. And so this morning, I don't know where your eyes are at, but there's plenty of chaos to look at in the world around us. And what I would like to do is to lift your gaze for a moment on who Jesus is with an amazing story from the book of Mark. I want to talk with you about trusting Jesus because these are days where you need something to trust in who is worthy of your trust. I want to look at three lessons about who Jesus is. And so we're going to look in Mark chapter 5 at an amazing story. I want you to take out your Bible and I want you to read along with me. We want to spend time together soaking in this story to remind ourselves of who this Jesus is, to return our eyes to a focus on him. Let's look at Mark chapter 5 together. It's an incredible story. I'd like to read it, verses 1 through 10. They, Jesus and his disciples, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. 
This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Lesson number one of this Jesus that we read about here is the authority of Jesus. Now, in our Bibles today, as we read them, it's divided up chapter, verse, but this isn't the only narrative in the book of Mark that speaks to the authority of Jesus. When you look all the way back, starting in Mark 1, Jesus is in a synagogue, and he calls an impure spirit out. He sternly commands, come out of him, and the spirit does so with a shriek. Can you imagine being in that setting? The people were amazed. They said to themselves, what is this? It's a new teaching with authority. In Mark 2, Jesus heals this paralyzed man who's dropped through the roof, and he even forgives his sins. You remember that story? Authority over sickness. The people there say, we have never seen anything like this. And they're amazed. Later in the same chapter, Jesus talks about the religious tradition of the Sabbath, and he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He claims authority over religious tradition. In Mark 3, there's a man with a shriveled hand who comes, and Jesus speaks to him right in front of the people who would later plot to kill him. Jesus knows what he's doing here. He's putting himself on the cross when he says to this man, stretch out your hand. And the man is restored. At this point, crowds of people are pressing around Jesus to the point that he has to arrange a getaway boat because there's so many people. And the evil spirits even are recognizing him and yelling out, you are the son of God. So in Mark 4, he gets in this boat. And you remember the story that what happened in Mark 4. Through the storm, you are Lord of all. Jesus is resting. The disciples are out of their minds with fear. And he wakes up and says, be still. And everything becomes still. At this point, it's not the crowds, but it's the disciples who are looking at Jesus and saying, what is going on? And they're terrified because Jesus has command over all of nature. You could sum up the authority of Jesus by saying this. Jesus commands, and all of creation obeys. When Jesus commands, all of creation obeys. 
that narrative is clear throughout the book of Mark. And now we get to chapter 5, and this is a phenomenal story about the authority of Jesus over the spirit realm. This man who was not able to be chained day and night, crying out and cutting himself. What happens in this story? When he sees Jesus from a distance, he came running and he bowed the knee. What a phenomenal story about the authority of Jesus. When it comes to discussion of the spirit world, there are two opposite spectrums that I have observed people to fall on. I grew up in West Africa as the son of missionaries in that uh, area. And in West Africa, I tell you what, they are obsessed with the spirit world. They're terrified of the spirit world. They even do things that to us in the West sound crazy. They will name their kids terrible names, trash, spit. They want to give the children a bad name because if they gave them a good name, maybe a spirit would come and steal the child away. My friends in Cambodia tell me about when a child is born, the mother and the baby are literally put into this, wrapped with black cloth around so that the spirits can't see the new baby and come and steal it away. They're terrified. In Thailand, outside of houses, there are these little uh, spirit houses where people give food and, and money offerings to appease the spirit world. I've been in India and I've watched people crawl on their hands and knees to push a food offering before this idol to try to appease the spirit world. There are people in many, many cultures who are terrified of the spirit world and they live with that fear. Here in the West, we are on the opposite end of the spectrum most of the time. For us, this becomes, it's something in movies. You kind of, it's dress up. Unless we can empirically, scientifically prove the existence of something, we're not all that concerned about the spirit world. For many people, it is of no consequence to their lives. On both sides of that spectrum, I want to look you in the eye this morning and tell you, if you've landed on one or the other, the enemy of your soul has played a nasty trick on you. Because the spirit world is very real, and we also don't have to be afraid of it. Because we serve the king with all authority. I look at this story, and I am reminded of what Paul said in Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not the coworker who drives you crazy or the spouse that you just can't stand, the, the neighbor who is uh, doing something that's really annoying you. Our struggle's not against people, but it's against the rulers and against the authorities, against the principalities of darkness. Paul lays it out very clearly. Our struggle is real, but we do not have to be afraid because we have the authority of Jesus. In this story, in Mark 5, we see that what Jesus says is authoritative. What he does is authoritative because who he is is authoritative. He is the authority. It's like in school, I remember moments when we would have a substitute teacher in class. And they would try to get us to calm down, but we would just do whatever we wanted because we weren't scared of the substitute teacher. But when the principal walked in and just stood there quietly, we all got in order real quick. Authority had come. 
We recognize authority, but in our culture, we are trained to question authority. It's a value that we hold dear. And many authority figures have let us down over and over and over again. There is a king who will not let you down, who is trustworthy. You can stand on his promises. Bedrock authority is sorely lacking in our world today. And this morning, I'm lifting your gaze to Jesus, who commands and all of creation obeys. The authoritative one. Let's continue the story now and read verses 11 through 13. This is an amazing little piece of this story. Verse 11, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. The impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Lesson number two is the economy of Jesus. The authority is still on display. They, they couldn't go to the pigs until Jesus gave them permission. And when he did, it demonstrated the economy of Jesus. This part of the story has always bothered me. It drives me crazy because I feel like it's so destructive. It seems like Jesus destroyed the livelihood of people. It bothers me. I remember uh, when I visited a little town called Ottumwa, Iowa. I was there to speak in a church and share an update about what was happening in the city where we live. 1.5 million people. I shared about that and after the service... A gentleman came up to me and he said, hey, city boy, you want to come see a real hog barn? And like I said, whenever we're in a place, we jump in with both feet. And so I said, yeah, sure, I'm up for that. He said, 7.30 tomorrow morning, and he gave me the address. Now I've read Charlotte's Web. I'm, uh, my kids have stuffed animals, pigs. I was expecting to enjoy this time with these cute little piglets and when I got there the next morning, I was stunned. He looked at me in my jeans and my sweater, and he just sort of shook his head. He said, come here, let's get you some coveralls. And I had the audacity to say, will we be getting dirty? And he gave me a respirator, said, put this on or you won't be able to breathe. And I thought, what? now wait a second, where are we going? He said, follow me, city boy. And he took me into a hog barn. How many of you have ever been into a real live hog barn? I never had been, and I was in shock. There's this narrow little pathway up the middle, and then these pens containing, I don't know how many pigs each, but a thousand pigs were in this hog barn. I was overwhelmed. And so as we're walking in, he looks at me, and he says, hey, take off that respirator for a second and take a big whiff. I was like, okay, I'm not stupid, but I'll try it. So I did. And he said, you know what that smells like? Yes, I knew. And I thought, do, I, do you want me to tell you the word? And he said, money. And then he jumped over the little fence off this pathway of safety and said, come with me, city boy. Now I was at a decision point. Because these things were not these cute little piglets. They were like biting the fence and they were huge. 
And he said, come on, don't be afraid. Just don't fall down because they'll take you. <laughs> and I thought, Lord, I, all I wanted to do was, I just want to get home to my wife and family. But please be with me. I jumped in and those, that was crazy. At lunch that day, I talked with him about how pigs provided for an entire community. Put clothes on his kid's back, paid for food, provided for the community of Atumwa. So when I read this story, it bothers me because I feel like Jesus destroyed livelihood. And this reveals the way that Jesus thinks about economy and the way that I think about economy. I guess the lesson that you could summarize it is that Jesus counts differently than you and I do. He redefines value. See, you and I count everything. When you stop and really start thinking about it, we count everything. Back in March, we were counting rolls of toilet paper. Remember that? We count the, the points that we've got in our school for tests. We count grades. We count the money in our bank account, the time left in the day, the win-loss record of our favorite team. We count the square feet in our home, the year of our car. We count. We're obsessed with counting. And all of those, we want more, more. And then there's also the side of life where we say less. Boy, we're, we're counting the number of new cases in our county. We're counting the pounds on the scale. We're counting our average score for 18 holes of golf. We're counting. We want less. We want fewer. But we are a people obsessed with counting. And Jesus counts differently than you and I do. Because in his estimation, the, the redemption and the healing of one individual who was redeemed from the hand of the foe, was worth infinitely more than 2,000 pigs. It didn't even merit mention, really. Just skips over it. To Jesus, there's no question what is more valuable. And this is convicting to me. The rescue and restoration of one person is of more worth than vast capital assets. You and I are addicted to counting and measuring our worth by the numbers that we see. And Jesus says there is one number that matters, a lost soul being found. Jesus was always flipping the script when it came to defining value. You remember in the temple, he flipped tables and he said, it's not about merchandise, it's about prayer. In this story, he sends the pigs off. He said, it's not about that. It's about this person who is healed, restored, sitting in their right mind. What an amazing, amazing story. Jesus counts differently than you and I do, and he redefines value. Let's finish the story. Look, if you would, now at verses 14 through 20. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. 
as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, the, the cities all around, how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. So obviously, if there's a legendary figure out in the hills, and a bunch of pigs just went down an embankment, there's a little bit of a neighborhood commotion. People are going to hear the story. It's like in your neighborhood, when you, when you hear a siren or you see an ambulance, like people come out, you congregate, you figure out what is going on. And when they came out and saw this man, you would think that there would be happiness and excitement that this crazy guy has been healed. But what did it produce? The exact opposite, terror. Because for these people, if this person could not ever be controlled, and then one person came who easily and quickly completely restored him, that power is even greater. We're terrified. They pleaded with Jesus, please leave our region. And I can just picture the awkwardness of Jesus getting in the boat and this poor guy who has a reputation in this community. He's the crazy guy. He's the one who costs them. I can just picture the struggle of him jumping and saying, please let me come with you. But what this illustrates so clearly for us is the intentionality of Jesus. Lesson number three. He is authoritative, he redefines economy, and he is intentional in the way that he commissions us. I guess you could describe this with a summary statement that when Jesus commissions, he gives unique purpose to life. The conclusion of this story is remarkable to me. I love the strategic mind of Jesus at work because he knows he's not going to be back in this region and he looks at this man who has been restored and tells him, uh-uh, you cannot come with me. Go home. Tell your people about all that God has done for you. Remarkably, this is the first sent one. Up to this point, Jesus had been saying, come, follow me. Come along with me. And this time we hear him use the word, go. Go and tell of all that the Lord has done for you. Jesus was always giving unique commissions to people. You remember in different spots in scripture, the disciples were, no, they knew he was the Messiah, but Jesus told them, in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, don't tell anybody. There was a leper who was healed and Jesus said, don't tell anybody who did this. The strategic mind of Jesus at work. In this instance, Jesus tells the man, go home. In other circumstances, Jesus said, leave your father and mother. To this one, he said, go to your home. This just shows me so clearly that there is not one basic command for the way you should live your life as a follower or disciple of Jesus. My family has been called to live overseas, but that is not the call for everybody. Uh, frankly, as I am in the U.S., I have concern that at times 
the church in the United States can be guilty of delegating the idea of missions to a select few who go to a different country. And what I'm calling you to today is to be very aware that Jesus also calls you to go home and to tell of all that the Lord has done for you to your own people, to speak intentionally of what he has done for you. This healed man chose to trust the command of Jesus. That was an incredible decision of obedience. Because it's way easier to go to a different place where nobody knows you and to be really bold there. I felt that when we first moved overseas. Nobody knew me. It was easy. And then after a couple of years... My kids are in school with those people. That's my neighbor. We run a business here. Gets a little harder, doesn't it? And then we have people come and visit our context on short-term trips, and they remark over and over, boy, when I'm here, I feel so bold. I said, I bet you do, because you're not at home. You got nothing to lose here. Jesus called this man to the very place where he had the most to lose, and he said, go and speak up about all that God has done for you. I'm asking you this morning to consider the words of Psalm 107, verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. Would you tell your story to your people of all that the Lord has done for you? In these days of uncertainty, of growing waves all around us, I would like to remind you to trust the authority of Jesus. Jesus said in John 16, 33, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Trust the authority of the one who paid it all for you. When he commands, the entire world obeys. Trust his authority. May you trust his definition of economy. It's so different than our definition. He counts differently. In Luke 15, we're reminded that there is joy in heaven. There's singing among the angels before God when one sinner repents. Story after story told by Jesus illustrated the value of a redeemed soul. Redeemed from the hand of the foe. Would you trust his definition of economy? Lastly, would you trust the intentional discipleship command that Jesus has for you? It may look different than others in this church family, but he is commissioning you. There are people in your context who need to know what the Lord has done for you. Would you trust That the one who said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Authority. Then go. And and teach all nations. Baptize them. Share with them what the Lord has done for you. And know that I am with you always. We do not have to be afraid in the world that we live in because we know the king. And he redefines what is valuable to us and then sends us out on mission. Would you trust that he is on the throne? Would you remove your eyes from the waves around you and return them to Jesus, the only one who is worthy?
My prayer for you is that as you go throughout your week, you would experience deeper and deeper levels of trust in the only one who is trustworthy. Would you go in his strength and in his power? Amen. Thank you. Denny? Dave, that was great. Wow. So when you go home today, it's not just to your home where you actually live. It's to the people around you. And as you do, not only to your home today, but to the people that you influence throughout this week. And when you go into your world tomorrow, who comes to your mind? Who do I want to tell what God has done in my life? I think you and I know, without a shadow of a doubt, that Tuesday has an enormous impact on our world, specifically for the next four years and specifically in this nation. But Dave has reminded us that our eyes are on Jesus, who is the grand authority and the greatest authority. But we also want to seek his face. And I've asked you to do that over the weekend, on a blog this weekend. And as you pray today, tomorrow, as you vote on Tuesday, take that responsibility seriously. It is bought and paid for by the price of hundreds and hundreds of people. And we never want to take that lightly. It doesn't matter. We say it doesn't have that much of an impact. Absolutely it does. And I encourage you to take that responsibility seriously. Let's see God's face. Father, obviously you are the authority. You are the one that we come to. This world is yours. It's not our home. Heaven it is. But you entrust us with an enormous amount of responsibility. And while we're here in this world, we do have an impact on those around us. And so, Father, as we begin to think about our home, not just the place we live, but the influence of the people around us, who is it that you want us to tell what you have done in our lives and the change you have made? We lay Tuesday at your feet. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, it has an enormous impact on our nation for these next four years. We plead with you, Father, to bring healing, restoration, bring peace in the middle of turmoil, and allow us to sense your presence in it all. Pray for your hand of mercy and grace on our nation. We know that you lift kings up and set them down. We know that you have deep interest in nations, not just in people as well. And so, Father, I plead for your intervention in this nation. As we vote on Tuesday, may your hand of mercy and grace be upon us, and may your will be done. We lay it at your feet. We pray, God, that you will do an amazing work in our lives, and you will continue to bring people to yourself because you really are the only answer to life. In the name of Jesus, we pray.